Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Jeffrey Walsh. He is partner at Vasante Sederberg, and he's also co-founder at Composite Agency. We're going to find out a little bit more about his background, what he does, his involvement with cannabis. We've had a, at least one or two people on from Vasante in the, in the last couple months. And I'm always curious what's happening on the kind of the legal front. Obviously, a huge part of the cannabis business is, uh, you know, everything from the legislation to regulation to actually, you know, helping people stand up businesses in the cannabis space. Obviously, a little more complicated than the kind of standard industry or other industries. So we'll get into a little bit of that. But um, interesting background that Jeffrey has. So I'm excited to talk about this and hear how he got into cannabis. So with that, Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Bruce, for having me. Looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, yeah, myself as well. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with background. I'm always uh, curious how people got into cannabis. I find there's always an interesting story, (laughs) an interesting path people have been on. So let's do that, and then we can talk about some of the work that you're doing today. 
Sure. So, you know, I, I moved to Los Angeles 15 years ago with the intentions of being a studio musician. Actually, you know, got my master's in jazz saxophone from, from USC, was touring and recording, um, mm-hmm. and eventually sort of tapped out of the studio musician route with the hopes and intentions of becoming an entertainment lawyer. You know, kept leaving gigs and seeing, uh, you know, managers and agents and, uh, <laughs> and lawyers leave in, uh, leave in nicer cars and have a nicer lifestyle. So I thought, look, I can do that. Um, so headed to uh, Pepperdine in, in 2010, which was actually my first exposure to the cannabis industry. My future business partner, Luke Stanton, was already working on the criminal defense side of the cannabis space in 2010, and he got me started in the space. And what's interesting is 2010 is the year that Vicente Cedarberg was actually formed. And so, you know, we're, we're sitting in Malibu, you know, trudging through three years of law school and looking at what they're doing. And, and Luke and I said to each other, you know, hey, we want to do something similar to them, you know, just focused in California. Yeah. So graduated in 2013 and uh, really had to get the entertainment bug out of my system. And so I decided to take a lawyer position at William Morris Endeavor, the world's largest talent agency in 2013, and was there for uh, about a year and a half. I, I kind of always knew that I was going to go back to cannabis. And I kind of always had one foot in the cannabis space, even while mm-hmm. I was at uh, WME. But it was a it was essentially, you know, like getting my master's degree in the entertainment industry. I had a wonderful time there, worked my tail off and, and focused on making relationships with cannabis friendly talent and management while I was there. So at some point, you know, it sort of made more sense. I've kind of hit my head on the ceiling of WME as it related to exploring cannabis opportunities. And I left in 2015 to start Frontera Law Group, which was the the law firm Luke Stanton and I started. It was absolutely incredible experience. You know, neither him nor I had ever started a business before. And we were relatively, you know, fresh out of law school still. Um, But, you know, the timing was ideal. Our first two of our first three clients at the firm were, you know, Ease, which is California's largest delivery platform, and MedMen. And this was when MedMen was, you know, opening up shops in California. And so, you know, really our first couple clients, I think, helped springboard us into relevancy as as far as service providers in the space. And, And we're really able to cut our teeth with companies who, you know, had a unique vision and who were also making real waves in the industry at the time. And so sort of fast forward, you know, we were able to grow the firm significantly to a point of where we had uh, over 300 clients under representation, all California cannabis businesses, which I believe made us at the time the largest cannabis law firm in, in the state of California. At around two years ago, we started to have some initial conversations because some of our clients began exploring other you know, state licensed opportunities and, and Frontera was strictly, you know, California focused. We wanted to, A, you know, walk the walk as far as what we told our clients, which was, hey, you have to constantly be evolving, you know, yourself and your business in the space. And also we didn't want to lose those clients to larger firms. So after a couple conversations, Vicente Cedarberg was just a tremendous fit for us. You know, Vicente Cedarberg's the largest cannabis hemp and law firm in the country, not huge by size of lawyers, you know, we're 55 lawyers, but, you know, have thousands of clients under representation. So we decided to join Vicente Cedarberg. And, you know, my position now is co-running the California office with one of my amazing uh, colleagues and and partners, uh, Cassia Furman. Um, And so I've been with VS for a little over a year now, and things are going Wonderfully, obviously, it's been an interesting uh, <laughs> year to say the least. Euphemism, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, it, it's been it's been really great for us. And, uh, you know, the, the Vicente Cedarberg team has been incredible to me. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity and hope to, you know, continue to add value to them, not only with our existing client base that we brought to them, but, you know, a constantly expanding client base and, and hopefully myself uh, leading the charge on bridging the gap between the entertainment and cannabis and hemp industries. Yeah. I'm curious what, given the fact that you're based in LA, I mean, what is the sort of differences in the types of clients you typically work with versus some of the other offices? Is there anything you specialize in? Sure. You know, it's interesting, right? Because there's actually lots of similarities between entertainment law and cannabis law as far as what that means. It's a very broad net um, that's cast when, when you talk about those things. And so I'm a bit of a jack of all trades as it relates to my day to day, all focused on cannabis. But, you know, in any given day, I could be looking at an intellectual property agreement, some, you know, a regulatory or compliance question for a client, some corporate formation work, you know, looking at complex transactions, M&A work, a little bit, a dash of employment law. And obviously, you know, certain clients want to work with me because of my background in the entertainment space. And so I would say that's one thing that meaningfully differentiates me, not only from from any Anyone else at BS, but you know, really, really anyone else in the cannabis and hemp communities right now is my significant entertainment background and my experience and ability to navigate, you know, negotiations with entertainment properties or talent as it relates to, you know, our clients. Yeah, and um, give us a little sense of how things have played out. I mean, I, we had some interesting times in the cannabis world in 19, 20 came along, gave us you know a global pandemic, but then declared cannabis essential service. What is it that's really kind of coming out for most of your clients in terms of you know the types of activities? Are they launching companies? Are they you know doing partnerships? Like what really is involved in representing some of these companies in terms of the types of services you're providing or the types of deals you're doing? Sure, it's a really interesting dynamic, Bruce, and, and in some ways you know an unfortunate dynamic. But the reality is, some of our clients are having banner years, right? And those yeah. clients were were those who were able to carve out you know, meaningful market share in in the space pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. Those clients, if they're cultivators, you know, they can't keep their product on the shelf. It's sold before it's even, you know, harvested, essentially. And our retailers and delivery clients are also doing exceptionally well. I'm, I'm seeing, you know, obviously an uptick in in delivery over traditional retail just because of, you know, the world we live in currently. You know, on the opposite side of things, clients who were sort of ready to get started don't have the traditional means of activation or marketing that they did pre-COVID. So, you know, some of them have had to meaningfully pivot or get extremely creative, which is hard in a time that, you know, our industry is still very person to person focused and, you know, make and and solidify a ton of relationships at physical events and activations as do our clients as it relates to, you know, supply chain relationships and things like that. And so I'm seeing a dynamic whereby a lot of groups who haven't carved out significant market share are really struggling, you know, and in some cases having to make some really tough decisions, whether it relates to layoffs or even, you know, dissolution altogether. And that's just, you know, that side of the space is, is feeling the pinch of what's happening in our country right now, much more so you know, than our well-established clients. And so I don't like to use the word interesting as it relates to some of our clients you know, really struggling, but just from a high-level business perspective, it's an interesting market dynamic between those who were successful pre-COVID and those who you know, really planned on launching you know, in the past couple months. Yeah. I'm curious in your take, I mean, uh, given that cannabis you know, still exists within this kind of federally illegal context, 
how does it change? I mean, I know a lot of you know folks that companies that get in kind of distressed situations. You know, they'll they'll look for you know bankruptcy protection and some of these tools that that you know companies can use to kind of set up some protection and figure out how to weather some of these storms, restructure if need be. You know, mergers and acquisitions. Like, how does kind of the situation of cannabis and and you know the fact that it's illegal on a federal basis? How does it change some of the options and maybe some of the strategies about dealing with distressed situations? Sure, so that's certainly probably something for some of my other corporate partners to kind of dive into a little more meaningfully. But the federal dynamic, I don't think has changed. Look, if you're once you're involved in the space, right, I think you've already accepted a certain amount of risk or have gotten comfortable with that risk, which at this point is is, you know, relatively nominal unless you're aggressively pursuing traditional black market activity. Um, And then, you know, you expose yourself to some uh, to some potential legal issues, obviously. Um, But, you know, it really kind of not, not to belabor the point I already brought up, but it's really been good for clients who are well established. Established because you know there are tons of distressed assets on the market, yeah. which make well-established clients with who are liquid able to gobble up assets that they otherwise wouldn't have considered or wouldn't have ever entertained. And so we're seeing a bit of a situation, you know, with, with the rich getting richer here. Yeah, it's a fascinating time. You know, just I always find the little bit of stress in the market tends to separate <laughs> separate those that yes. can perform well and have good fundamentals and, you know, have good operating processes and stuff. And then those that don't, you know, end up suffering, you know, a little bit more so. And there's always a little bit of a culling in the in the market when this happens. I mean, how do you see this kind of playing out for some of these businesses? How do you think it's going to affect the overall cannabis market? You know, what where are things going to land in the coming, you know, quarters and, and years as we kind of move through the pandemic and, and as the market begins sure. to kind of... Uh, develop? Sure. I I certainly see, you know, I think we were going to see a consolidation regardless of whether or not, you know, the pandemic happened, but the pandemic has just expedited that consolidation. That doesn't mean you won't see new brands. I just think that a lot of those brands, we have a lot of clients who had a thesis that they've been dusting off the shelf during this time of if, if they're close to being vertically integrated or vertically integrated, there really isn't a dispensary that whose products you know, on a retail shelf are all theirs. And so I have multiple clients who are looking to stock their retail stores or their delivery license offerings with exclusively their products that are just branded differently. And so you, the consolidation was going to happen no matter what. I think it's just the reality of dealing with how expensive compliance, you know, in obtaining licensure in California is, you know, which I always ballpark to my clients, like minimum of a quarter million dollars, usually closer to seven figures all in to get to get operational. But that's uh, that's something that uh, I'm anticipating that that trend to just continue to go. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. You know, you're mentioning the brand. I'm curious. One of the things that you know I kind of watch and and, and think is really a, a big part of this next generation of the cannabis market is real brand building and you know moving away from you know whoever can produce the highest THC <laughs> flower yeah. to you know, something that's really much more of a, a consumer facing segment oriented you know addressing kind of market needs and market desires. What has been your kind of experience and, and where do you see kind of brands going and how are brands being formed? I mean, I'm, I'm quite curious given your background in entertainment. You know what the 
I, I just see such a tight coupling <laughs> between you know music and entertainment and cannabis. How is this linking up for you? Is it is it happening? Are you seeing deals being done? Yeah, I mean, music and cannabis is peanut butter and jelly, right? There's yeah. not there's not much of a better fit between those two. During my time at Frontera, right before you know, right before Prop 64 passed, you know, we saw the writing on the wall, and as a reaction to that, I did co-found a full service creative agency called Composite, which is based in Venice. Uh-huh. That agency's goal was was initially really to just be an incubator for our clients at Frontera at the time to help them survive the sort of inevitable wave and rush of corporate money into cannabis post adult use passing in California. And that really, you know, my time at WME was was really cutting my teeth on the entertainment space, but forming composite, you know, my role there is really limited to um, business development and also, you know, assisting with IP filings and, you know, analyzing packaging to make making sure it's compliant. But that also opened me up to seeing what what it really takes and what it really costs to create a preeminent brand in the space. And so, you know, I have to thank my partners, you know, at Composite, all of whom have, you know, 20 to 30 years in traditional advertising and marketing. And the reality is, you know, creating a good brand, I think, starts first and foremost with, you know, what story are you going to tell to your consumers? And and which consumers are you talking to? Right. That 29 percent THC product might fly off the shelf in California right now. But I don't think branding is as important for a product like that because consumers of high potency cannabis are going to go and seek that product out and find that. So you don't have to worry about marketing to them as much as you need to worry about a different product, say a consumable or a topical, understanding who your market dynamic is. If you do have a brand ambassador or an entertainment property aligned, understanding who their target demographic is and really being able to craft a marketing story that that speaks to them directly without coming off as, you know, tacky or uncool, which is sort of, you know, the death knell for for any brand in any industry, but but even more so in the cannabis space. Yeah. yeah. And any interesting brands out there that you've see doing, you know, interesting things, you know, have a particularly good strategy, you know, getting this stuff right. What's actually happening in the market from your point of view in terms of success stories? Sure. I mean, one brand, you know, that sticks out to me, you know, that was launched during during the pandemic is a brand called Far Out. Far Out is sort of a almost a psychedelic themed cannabis brand. Um, mm-hmm. They do have extremely potent products, but um, they're cheap. You know, not not cheap as far as quality, just cheap as far as, you know, cost to purchase. And their target demographic are younger, you know, millennials who are who don't have the disposable income that, you know, a baby boomer or a successful professional has, but want to enjoy that experience. And I think the one thing they're doing, which to me is is incredibly, if you check them out, well, their website is faroutweed.com. And then um, I would have to check on their Instagram handle. I think it's just far out uh, something is, you know, to address the fact that they couldn't have traditional activations, they've actually come out, they, they've launched a suite of merchandise that coincides with the launching of new SKUs for them. And they started putting out musical mixtapes kind of on a, you know, once every month, once every two month basis to help drive traffic to their brand and help sort of secure brand loyalty Mm -hmm. that way. So that to me is just a great example of a brand thinking outside of the box, right? Hey, we can't activate at, you know, physical events. So how are we going to get people to, you know, to continue to come back to us? Well, let's, you know, let's launch some mixtapes that help, you know, promote the brand. And then to me, that's just a relatively low cost, but meaningful differentiator. And I haven't seen too many other companies, you know, kind of do that. 
I don't know how successful you know this is. I think it really depends on a brand by brand basis. But I've also seen a lot of companies get way more active on their social channels as it relates to you know live sessions or live Q and A's. I think that's a great opportunity for you know the, the the owners of the brand to get to know their audience better and and actually have real communication with them. But I do think that 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 all hinges on how much experience they have in marketing, right? Because that could either be a great success or a great flop if, you know, you're unable to sort of present your brand to your consumers, you know, online in a successful or meaningful or or cool manner. Yeah. Yeah. And give me a sense of, from a kind of regulatory point of view at this point, what's working, what's not working in terms of, you know, how this market is evolving. I mean, obviously one of the, the huge factors in all this is kind of the regulatory context that the that operators need to kind of operate within. Uh, what have you been seeing either California specifically or, or general in, in terms of these states that are put, you know, either changing the regulations or, you know, launching new cannabis industries in their state, what do you need to kind of know from a cannabis point of view or, or people that are in the cannabis business? What are the sure. big takeaways from sure. regulation I, at this point? I think the biggest lesson now, now California is certainly a one-off because of our market size and sort of, yeah. you know, political, social, and physical environment diversity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have more, you know, I think physical land diversity and social and political diversity, I, I would say almost than any other state in the nation. That might just be as a result of how, how large we are. But I think one of the biggest takeaways for other state markets for California is, you know, California has three regulatory agencies right now. And the goal, you know, of that split was to sort of, you know, minimize the pressure on one agency uh, for 40 million people. But they're actually going to be consolidating those agencies in July of 2021. And I think that's a huge takeaway for new state markets is... Look, it, despite the fact that it might be a huge bite off the apple, the challenge to date with a lot of regulators and our clients and us and dealing with regulators is that there's been uh, challenging communication between the agencies themselves, which just leads to timelines being drastically drawn out, particularly now in, in sort of this new this new normal of, of, you know, sort of working from home and things like that. You know, by comparison, you know, legal cannabis in California is still quite young, right? We're kind of only a couple of years into an experiment that's going to take decades to really solidify. But I think a lot of state markets are taking a look at what California is doing and trying to learn from those lessons as it relates to tax rates being way too high. That just incentivizes the black market to continue to thrive. Mm-hmm. Licensing being incredibly challenging, right? Everyone assumes California is this, you know, hub of cannabis activity, and it certainly is. But, you know, you have to separate legal from illegal cannabis activity when you talk about that. And forget the exact statistics, but I think it's something like almost, I think it's 65, 66% of the cities in California still have not authorized any type of cannabis activity legally, right? And so you have this huge state, but there's minimal licensing opportunities, mm-hmm. which means cost of, you know, competition goes up, you know, with limited licensure availability, which means the cost to entry is extremely high. And, you know, once you actually do get a license, if you have multiple licenses, communicating with agencies and trying to get sort of things done in one fell swoop is nearly impossible to do. And so something as simple as changing an owner on your license, Bruce, can take as as long as a year to get done, wow. to just update an owner on your license, right? And that's something that, you know, in an ideal world would take a couple days, right? Yeah. Well, and and I mean, how does that impact the businesses? I mean, uh, this is really kind of 
gum up, you know, transactions and, and things like that. I mean, I, that's got to be course. hard for the industry. As yeah. you might imagine, right, in, in a lot of M&A deals, you know, if you're acquiring a license, you know, a <laughs> exactly. condition to closing that license is that I own it. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's um, titles transferred, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, when you have a situation where we literally just went through this this week where we found out it took, you know, basically a year for ownership to transfer um, at the state level. And, you know, that can hold up all sorts of contingencies in a meaningful contract, which, you know, to use your words, absolutely gums up, you know, everything and just sort of delays um, things getting done from like a legislative and, and social mindset, right, as far as the, the general acceptance of the cannabis plant and its medicinal value and, and recreational value just from a tax revenue uh, standpoint. You know, when when the deals in the legislature are moving so quickly um, and the times are changing so quickly, but the regulators have their feet stuck in the mud, it's a really challenging push-pull dynamic there. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, what happens in those contracts? I mean, you just have to, you've developed conditions and language in there that just says, you know, in this period where everyone's going to treat the owner as this person, even if the license isn't officially transferred in a state or like, how do you deal with that? That's, that's correct. Because really to date that, that example I gave um, about this week where um, the Bureau of Cannabis Control actually informed us, you know, that the change was successful. That was the first time we've seen the Bureau actually confirm an ownership change Uh, to date. (laughs) They just would never reply to us, you know, and so the contingencies we'd sort of have to build in, hey, the deal's closed upon submission of the change yeah. unless, you know, we hear otherwise, which understandably makes both sides pretty uncomfortable, right? Because there's yeah. usually seven figures of consideration, you know, involved in, in a deal like that. Yeah. And, you know, if something does go wrong and you have to unwind all that, I mean, that would be nightmare. Oh, yeah, they're right. Having having sold a couple of companies. Sure. I mean, imagine you sell a dispensary, you know, and and you've got your full new team, you know, or the buyer's got their full new team in the shop. And then months down the line, regulators reach out and say, you know, hey, we have an issue here. That's not something you can just, you know, stop and put down. You know, these are businesses who have investors and shareholders to answer to. And uh, yeah, it can be extremely, extremely problematic. Yeah. Any state that you see doing kind of interesting things or um, we've had a couple of states that kind of come online the last year or so that uh, anything that in terms of different approaches or structures that that you've seen out there that are they're interesting to note. The most su- refreshingly surprising state to me, and this is this is sort of, all, you know, all over. So I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here is, is Oklahoma, which was you know surprising initially to hear when, when, when I saw the regs. But they're really taking a sort of just like a capital markets approach and let the operators compete to determine who the consumers want to stay in business. And so the cost to entry is extremely low. I think it's around, you know, $5,000 to get licensure there. And, you know, that obviously doesn't include real estate, but still, you know, compared to California, where I would say regulatory cost all in is, you know, and compliance cost is, is six figures. And so they're also wildly open to like licensing arrangements from other states, mm-hmm. which means that our clients in California or elsewhere who are desiring to, you know, I- increase their position and, and notability nationwide um, are, are easily able to have and then tell their story that, look, hey, we, you know, we were able to get into another state market. And so those deals are, are happening all the time. And I hope more state markets take the approach that Oklahoma did because, look, they're kicking butt from, you know, a revenue standpoint. And 
you know, this sort of goes into a separate but similar issue. One of the huge issues in California are social equity considerations, right? These huge metropolitan areas where the drug war, you know, has has disproportionately harmed, you know, people of color and poor people. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, you have a, a lot of, you know, traditional white collar, you know, white people greatly benefiting from the sale of a plant that a lot of people are incarcerated for or have gotten into some legal trouble for. And so mm-hmm. my hope is that, you know, that the process just be made easier to obtain licensure because that's really the barrier to entry right now for our California clients, right? Uh, most people don't have a quarter million dollars to open a business. And neither yeah. did I, Bruce. Look, like I opened my first law firm with 2,500 bucks, right? Yeah, I exactly. didn't have a quarter million yeah. bucks um, and most people don't. And yeah. so I, I'm, I'm hoping that that other states look at what's going on and sort of uh, really try to even the playing field. I am not a fan of these state markets that have, you know, limited what what we call competitive licensing processes, because that's just going to result in, you know, the top 1% obtaining those licenses, because they're the only people who can afford it. Yeah, yeah, it just kind of uh, exacerbates and continues the, pr- the problems that we've had totally. you know, historically. Yeah. And, you know, just because we're a couple of weeks away from election, I got to ask, what's your what's your take on federal legalization? You are uh, any advice you're giving to clients or how, how are you kind of looking, reading the tea leaves at this point in terms of where we might be on a federal basis? Sure. Cautiously optimistic. You know, my, my firm, this is public information now, so I have, I have no issue uh, sharing that, you know, worked extremely hard on, on throwing an event for the Biden-Harris campaign, you know, which was last week. Um, you know, our firm was able to raise some over $300,000 in support of the campaign. And it was really a call to action, get out the vote um, yeah. campaign. Well, there, there are obvious reasons, you know, in my mind, why, well, we don't have to get too political here, but but why we supported uh, Biden-Harris. But um, also, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, has come out repeatedly and said, you know, one of her goals, should they get elected, um, is going to be to, you know, meaningfully decriminalize or deschedule cannabis altogether. Yeah. Um, decriminalization would be a great first step. But, you know, obviously for us and for our clients to really open the floodgates, you know, to allow for a franchise model, right? That's the thing that crushes a lot of businesses, the capital that's needed, right, to set up operations and and get the trust in an out-of-state partner to have them run the brand without, um, you know, being concerned about brand dilution or lessening the quality of their products is significant. And so I don't think that means that's going to be the first thing, you know, Biden and Harris address, you know, should they get elected. But I do hope that's something that is more than simply you know, talk. And we're we're confident that some meaningful steps can be taken, you know, at the federal level. And so our client, you know, everyone's kind of waiting right now, right? We're so close to the election that we're all just kind of sitting um, and waiting to see what happens. Should Trump get reelected? Trump hasn't been bad for cannabis necessarily. He just hasn't done anything to push the needle forward. But, you know, there hasn't been significant uh, or any federal intervention on state programs or state operators, you know, operating legally under state programs. And so that's all well and good. But this industry, if it's to get where it it can be and where it's capable of, you know, needs the ability to, you know, ship products across state lines, which would, uh, you know, open up banking and insurance for for everyone. Yeah. Jeffrey, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best place to get that information? Sure. You know, my email is is j.welsh at Vicente Cedarburg. It's probably easiest to get a hold of me on Instagram because that that email is a bit of a mouthful. My Instagram (laughs) is at jdwelsh, W-E-L-S-H. 
Um, I'm always on there for, for business purposes, you know, checking out new brands and, and talking to clients and promoting, you know, the firm and, and, and our clients. That's usually the easiest way to get a hold of me. But, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And, you know, if you want, Bruce, I think you mentioned, you know, you, you would like to provide my socials or something in, in the link. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, feel free to email me or Instagram me, um, you know, would be happy to chat with anyone. Um, and any, any questions you got, I'm, I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of. Perfect. Yeah, we'll put all of that in the show notes here so people awesome. can click through and get that. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely, Bruce. No, my pleasure. I'm having an awesome weekend. And uh, no, this was great. We'd love to do it again sometime soon. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.